Grab your Bibles. But I'm not telling you where to turn until I introduce the message this morning. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we start a new book of the Bible to study, we do ask your blessing. We open the scriptures. May your Holy Spirit open the eyes of our understanding that we may see the wonderful things you have for us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, where to go from here? We finished the book of Revelation last Sunday, chapter 22, at a wonderful time of studying that 22-chapter prophetic book, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We started in July. We finished last Sunday. It was just a wonderful time. And so reflecting on where to go from here, I started thinking about where we've been. An unveiling of the future history, as Tennyson wrote, one far-off divine event toward which all creation moves, in speaking of the second coming, and we got to see how that marvelous truth unfolds. Just incredible. A revelation of really the end of the world as we know it, and we sat with that week after week after week. Yes, most of it a dire warning. 13 chapters of jaw-dropping, catastrophic judgments of God falling on a Christ-rejecting world. And we also saw the wonderful good news all throughout the book of Revelation, a breathtaking glimpse of heaven, a bejeweled city with brilliant light where God dwells with his people and wipes away the tears from our eyes with his own hands. It's just incredible, wonderful destiny that await those who believe and trust in the Savior. Of the 66 books in the Bible and 31,103 verses, there's one verse that summarizes the whole Bible very well. John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so the book of Revelation really shows us what it means to perish that terrible, fiery torment uh, that goes on without end, and what it means to have eternal life with God dwelling with us forever and ever. And so really the conclusion of that 22-book prophecy was an altar call. You know, it wraps up really with the gospel message being heralded to us from all directions. Quote, and let the one who is thirsty come. But the one who desires to take the water of life free to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then we hear the Holy Spirit calling out to sinners, come and have eternal life. And the Lord Jesus in those closing verses calling out, come and have eternal life free. And then the bride or the church chimes in, God's people calling out to sinners, come and have eternal life. And it even says, those who hear the gospel for the very first time, they all join in the chorus and they're saying, come and have this eternal life. And so Revelation 22 can be boiled down really easy. It's not rocket science at all. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid. Come and have life. Uh, considering what's at stake, as we've been seeing uh, since last July, 
And uh, the conclusion, really, in, in light of what's coming, we as God's people have a job to do. And the book of Revelation, in my estimation, is a real call to the church to be the church. So as I'm thinking, where do we go from here? What book in the New Testament would help us to really focus and be inspired and motivated to be all that God has called us to be? Because the word for church just means called out person, called out from unbelief in the world and, and to connect with the living God. And so all of us together would make the church. And so which book in the Bible really would help us do our task and focus on it, building up the, the strength of the church and reaching out to the lost? Why don't you turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. We are going to study this verse by verse, chapter by chapter. This is the book that inspires us and instructs us, and we find who we are supposed to be and how we're working together as we uh, obey God's commands. And so we're going to take a look this morning at the first eight verses. There's a lot in those first few verses. And so Acts 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we'll pause there and introduce the book of Acts. And if you're taking notes, that would be a good way to do it. Number one, the introduction. The book of Acts is introduced to us by the author, who is Luke, as a sequel to his former book. Acts tells us that Jesus' work had a beginning, but it doesn't really have an end. It's a work in progress, as we all are. So the book of Acts is really Luke picking up where he left off. In fact, where all four gospel writers left off. And he tells us that in the opening verse. Uh, he says, in my first book, I told you about everything Jesus began to do and teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven. So what's that first book? That first book, of course, is Luke, the gospel of Luke, the life and teaching of Jesus. Everything, and this is important, that Jesus began to do and teach, dot, dot, dot. Uh, and what a beginning it was. I mean, here we have Jesus who just told us in the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, that he is the beginning. He is the A and the Z, the Alpha and Omega. And now Luke says, in my first book, I wrote about the beginning of the beginning, where the beginning one came and made himself a human being, the eternal second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who existed before time. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, he's called the everlasting father. In fact, in the Hebrew, it says the father of eternity. Isaiah 9, 6, he came. The father of eternity came and clothed himself 
in human flesh. He took on human form to reconcile us back to God. Luke 19.10 says that the Son of God came to seek and save the lost. And that's what he did. He was God conceived of the Holy Spirit born of a woman and went around doing good. Book one, cleansing lepers, healing the blind, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, freeing demon-possessed, promising all who looked to him would have eternal life. He said, in my first book, I told you what he began to do. And the world had never seen those kinds of miracles that Luke wrote about in that first book. Remember in John 9, when the Lord healed the man born blind and the Pharisees gave him a hard time about uh, the healing because it was done on the Sabbath. And so as they're giving him a hard time, the blind man himself said, look, ever since the world began, no one has ever heard or nobody's ever been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. In my first book, he says, the world had never heard of this kind of teaching. Uh, in his first book, he said the crowds were just, they just, their jaws dropped in amazement. Because think of it. He's the God-man. So pure, unadulterated God's word from God's lips to human hearts. It, it was amazing. The crowds were in awe of whatever came out of his mouth. Do you remember in John chapter 7, the Pharisees decided it was time to haul Jesus in to give an account. So they sent out the guards. I love this story. And the guards go out, and he's teaching in the temple, so they didn't want to interrupt right away, and they're standing there, and they're listening to the God-man speak. And they come back empty-handed. And the Pharisees say, why didn't you bring him in? And they say in John 7, have you heard him? Have you heard this guy? Because, quote, he speaks in a way no one ever has spoken ever. And, and they just, you know, don't listen. So it didn't do them any good to hear that. But imagine God telling stories when he just tell these stories and people would just be just amazed. Um, let me tell you, Jesus says about this ungrateful brat of a son who, who cashes in his inheritance and walks away from mom and dad in the good life, and he goes to squander his inheritance and loose living, and squanders it all away. And he ends up on hard times, and nobody gives him anything. He ends up hiring himself out to a pig farmer. He ends up in the slop, feeding the pigs, and looking at the slop and going, man, that looks good. That's how bad it was for him. He's starving to death. And then one day, a light bulb comes on. The kid goes, duh, I, I don't have to be doing this. I could go home to my father's house. Even if I were a servant in my father's house, I'd be doing better than this. At least I wouldn't be so hungry. So he comes to himself, and he, and he leaves the pig pen, and he, he wanders down the road, and he's rehearsing his, his repentance speech over and over again. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. And bam, the father sees from the front porch and just starts running 
toward him. He falls on that kid in his dirty clothes and his stench from the pig pen. And he lavishes and smothers the kid with kisses all over. And the kid starts his speech, but the father interrupts him and says, let's have a party. Now, when God tells a story, man, God tells a story. And people said, we never heard anything like this. He says, Luke says, in my first book, I told you all about it. All that he began to do. We've never seen power and authority and riveting truth go forth because God had never visited before. So God became a human being and lived among us, volume one. Volume two, God now sends his spirit to live in us and through us. That's the sequel. Now notice, I've been pointing this out. He says, I told you everything Jesus began to do and teach, not everything Jesus did and taught, period, end of sentence. No. This is about something that lives on because you might have noticed in my first book that Jesus is alive and well, risen from the dead. So he says, let's pick up where he left off. The Son of God came to seek and save the lost, volume one, through his body. Volume two, through the spirit in his body called the church, through our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and on the same errand, he has sent his church. So the book of Acts, nothing is different except the format of Jesus' ministry. It's the same Jesus it's the same mission statement. I've come to seek and save the lost. The same teaching and the same message, but only a different method. And what a genius. What a genius. He says, I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to send a helper, but he's going to be a spirit, and he's going to get inside of all of you. And so that I, by my spirit in you, can reach into every nook and cranny of the world. I can get to your uncle Alfred, at your dinner table, I could get to your postal route where you carry the mail. I can get into your school and the kid by your locker, and I can get to your teacher at your liberal college that you attend to. <laughs> There'll be a lot of work, but I'm going <laughs> to get to him. <laughs> and so that's what's going on here. So it's volume two is through the church, or listen, through the acts of his apostles. Now that's a term that stuck in the second century. And that's why you have the book entitled The Acts of His Apostles, of His Apostles. Now, it's kind of a misnomer because there's really only there's a lot of apostles doing the actions, but really the first half of the book is the apostle Peter, and the second half is the apostle Paul. A better title for the book would be The Acts of the Risen Lord Through the Holy Spirit Working Through His Church. But nobody asked me, so it's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit is really the star of the book of Acts. He is mentioned uh, 62 times. So how His Spirit, the Lord's Spirit, came 
And what his spirit did through his people is the story of Acts, all right? So Acts introduces us to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It's very important that you understand him and his work in your heart and life. Because without him, you're not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian unless you've been born again. And being born again means by faith you've opened your heart and the Holy Spirit came into you and created in you new life. And so it's very important that we pay attention, especially to these opening verses, because there's a lot of insight there. Now, the disciples kind of had a sense that it was coming, John 16, on the night Jesus was betrayed, you know, the Last Supper, he says, really, truly, I say to you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So it's actually a good thing. You guys are going to need a helper. The New Testament needs to be written. He'll help you recall the things that I did and the things that I taught you. Your sinful nature will need to be conquered. You know, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So I'm going to have to help you out with that. And that is his job. He's the helper. And the world will need to hear the message to be saved. And you can't do that by yourself. So I'm going to send a helper. And we're going to learn about him in this book. How Jesus takes his soul-liberating gospel of eternal life uh, from 120 Jewish men, really, to a worldwide religion, if you will, that goes all throughout the then known world, especially throughout the Roman Empire. You know what? And they didn't, what did they have to work with? They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have modern transportation. They didn't have a lot of anything, but they had the Holy Spirit and a devoted and obedient heart to him. And in 30 years, which is the duration of chapter 1 to 28, 30 years history of the early church, you're going to see the world turned right side up because it's already turned wrong side over. Amen. Now, who's writing? This, this scholar, this man, Luke, he's a historian. He's a physician. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, we hear that he's beloved companion of Paul, who probably ministered to Paul as a physician along the missionary journeys. We know he's not a disciple like one of the 12, but he was a companion of Paul. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, we have the we passages. Suddenly it's we. We went here. We did that. And so we know that Luke joined them. And all the way to the end, you find that he is with Paul. Paul says in 2 Timothy, at the end of his life, my dear friend Luke is with me. And he's, oh, excuse me, he's the only one with me. He says, everybody else forsook me. But Luke, the, the beloved physician. And so he was a physician. And, and uh, this man named a scholar, Hobart, wrote an entire book called The Medical Language of Luke and Acts. There are 400 Greek terms for uh, medical conditions and medical language used that nobody else uses in the New Testament. 
400 times. So when Jesus is healing people, you get the medical term for what's going on. It's just wonderful to, to uh, just see how God used this physician. And many people say, you know, he's writing to this Roman senator because me- most excellent is a title. Most excellent Felix or most excellent Festus back in the uh, end chapters of the book of Acts. For Roman senators, you would call them that. Theophilus means lover of God. And so uh, some people say, here's this Roman senator who owned Luke. Now, in those days, uh, rich people, instead of spending money at hospitals and various doctors, it was cheaper for them to buy the doctor. So they would own the doctor. And so people think that this Roman senator, Theophilus, is Luke's master. And so he's telling his master the whole deal. Other people just say, hey, it's code. It, it, it's code for God lover. So he's saying, oh, excellent God lover, you know, meaning anybody who loves the Lord. This is the book. And of course, that fits either way you go. Uh, but so... I love the fact that most think that he's a Gentile. That means a not, a not, he's not Jewish. He's a Gentile, all right? Out of the 66 books, they're all written by Jews. It would make perfect sense to me that the message that it's recorded, that the gospel goes from Jewishness to the outside, would be written and recorded by the one from the outside and not a Jew. It just makes wonderful sense. Whether he's a Jew or Gentile, it's a a work that we need to study and live by. So he says, oh God, lover, I told you about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, um, but I also need to tell you and remind you about these 40 important days. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days, and he said, it's in my first book, But I'm going to tell you about a conversation that happened during those 40 days at at, right at the end before he left. But he says during those 40 days from Resurrection Sunday to the time he ascended, after suffering the cross, he was preparing the disciples in a clear, audible voice for the crucial days to come. That's kind of the jumping off place for the book of Acts is those 40 days. Jesus was still accessible to the um, disciples. He needed to be. These guys were wiped out by the cross. They just couldn't. They, I mean, look at Peter. I don't even know the guy. Oh, I saw you. You even sound like one of those Galileans. I swear I don't know the man. He was wiped out. Jesus needed some time to help him back, to reinstate him. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know. Feed my sheep. Thomas, another one. He missed the first church service, Sunday night service. Uh, Where was Thomas? You know, he was wiped out. And and then after church, they all went out to eat, and then they, they, uh, in walks Thomas, you know, and they say to him, oh, man, you miss a good one tonight. Yeah. (laughs) The Lord showed up, (laughs) seriously, and he did. And, And he says, unless I touch him, I'll never believe. You, you guys don't know how bad I loved him. And I took this, and I'm just a mess. And then the next Sunday night, he went to church. And the Lord comes in, and he says, Thomas, touch me, man. Come here. Touch. 
I heard what you said. You want to see? Here, take a look. Touch, put your finger, put your finger here. Feel. You feel that? They needed 40 days. They're walking along a road during those 40 days. And Jesus walks alongside them, and they're downcast, and, and, and they, they've lost their faith. Jesus says, oh, man, let me help you out here. So he takes the 40 days to pop in and pop out, and the verse says he stays with them during that time uh, at intervals to just strengthen them. To, to kind of relieve their doubts and bolster their confidence, and most importantly, instructing them in a clear, audible voice about the task at hand. The church age, the evangelization of the world, that's a big deal. And so Luke goes on to say, let me tell you about the last conversation they had during those 40 days. Oh, God, lover, because it was a good one. On one occasion, verse 8, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we're going to park there, uh, the last conversation face to face, really sets the whole tone uh, for the book of Acts. Now, the importance of last words, and these were last words shared together. They really cut to the chase, don't they? They get to the heart of what's important, last words before two people depart, especially in situations like I remember my mom and I had a phone call conversation a day or two before she died and went to heaven. That conversation is etched into my heart then there was the time I'll never forget, though it was 1990. My dad was close to death. He was still at home in his apartment. And I, I remember where I was sitting and what he was wearing and the conversation word for word. He started it. He was a very funny guy. And he started it and he said, you know, Ross, I, you know, you always wonder how you're going to die. It just goes through your head through, throughout your life. Is it this or that? He said, I just pictured me walking out into traffic and getting run over. <clears throat> and he said, I just didn't picture this. And then that opened the door for talking about heaven and, and, and his life and my life as his son. And wow, before a husband leaves for Afghanistan, you better believe there's some pretty important words there. Before a child, <laughs> just caught, caught up with me, sorry. The emotion just, before a child moves out, gets married. I remember my last conversation with one of our boys before he left. Last words. Jesus took full advantage, one writer said, 
of their last moments together where the Son of God could stare into their souls, eyeball to eyeball, using his tone, body language, facial features, and focus, the Son of God could take his nail-scarred hands and grab them by their shoulders and look into their eyes and with a loud, clear, audible voice and a clear message that would burn forever in their hearts. And that's what he did. And what did he say? He said, there's a lost world out there. I need you. Please help me. It's time. Let's do this. Same message. Seeking and saving the lost. Will you help me? I want everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Let's go get them. So Jesus reminds them about a promise from the Father. He said, I've already talked to you about it. We already had this conversation that the Father said he would send uh, the Spirit to help. There are two ideas here in this paragraph that really help us unpack what's here. He says about that helper who would come, he will fill you with power and he will fill you with a person. So those are the two ideas in this verse. One more. So first, the power, filling us with power. I'm sure they were really relieved that Jesus started with the power because he's given them a great big command. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine, and therefore this is what I want you guys to do when I leave. I want you to evangelize the entire world. I want you to bring the gospel to all the earth, every nation, and teach people to obey all my commands. Baptize them and raise them up, new believers in the Christian faith. And be sure to know this, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Can you imagine? Come on. They're poor. They don't have anything. Uh, The Jews just, through the Roman authorities, just crucified their Lord and founder. It's a very hostile place. And he's saying, now I want you to take the message. I want you to impact the, not, not, he said, start at home. It's going to grow. But I want you eventually, my people, to reach the entire world. In John 20, at that first Sunday evening service, Jesus' very first words, peace to you all. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And you could hear a big giant gulp in the room. What do you mean as the Father sent you? We know what you said. The Father has sent me to save the world. John 3, verse 17. The Father has sent me that the world might be saved. So he says, as the Father sent me, you guys, here I am, first night, so I'm sending you. They're like, are you serious? You want us to go and save the world? That, that Without education, without money, without influence, they're just nobodies. But then he says, that's why I'm going to tell you about power first, because you won't be doing it alone you're gonna have power. Now, most of you know that the word for power in this verse is from the Greek word dunamis, which we get our English word dynamite. Very good. He says, power is coming. Something explosive is coming your way, or rather someone explosive. You're going to have this kind of dynamite within you. 
And then next he said something that I'm sure they didn't like to hear very much at all. He said, but I want you first to wait. It's not my favorite command in the Bible. I don't know about you, but when the Lord says wait, he says, sit still. Don't go anywhere. Hang out together. Pray. You know, for it'll be not long from now. It turned out to be about 10 days. He says, I want you to wait because I got something to teach you in this. You can't do a thing until the Spirit comes and helps you. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so he says, let's take a little time. You'll realize you can do nothing until the Spirit comes. And he says, just like I told you, remember that night I was betrayed five weeks ago? What did I tell you? I said, it's a good thing that I go. It's for your good. Unless I go, I can't send the helper. He said, he'll be with you forever. He's called the spirit of truth. The world doesn't know him, but you will know him. He lives with you. And listen to this. And he will be in you. That kind of power. Where is it? In us. Wow. So they're getting excited. And well, they should. He says, when he comes, he'll prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and and wanting to get their lives right with God and about judgment because people don't believe, so you need the helper. So here's what he's saying. I want you to evangelize the world, but just know this, I'm gonna give you the power to do it because you can't change your friend, let alone the world. You need dynamite, you need power, and it comes in the form of a person and he's gonna be in you. Now that's just amazing. Now, I see that happen in uh, times of sharing the gospel with people. And I've told you the story about when I worked with Pepsi back in the good old days. I was a Pepsi man and uh, I was merchandising one day in a safe way and putting the Pepsi cans on their shelves. And there was somebody behind me, his name is Sergio. And Sergio is the Coke guy. So. He's behind me, and we're not supposed to talk with one another. I could have gotten fired if I touched a Coke product, you know, and that was true, actually. But, you know, we talked, and I didn't really like Sergio very much. Uh, we'd always run into each other, and uh, we had a playful thing going. He would tease me a lot. And, and what he would tease me about is Sergio was like a professional merchandiser. He'd take the Coke cans, and he was like, you know, spin them all, and just... He's a fast-moving guy, you know? Me, I don't do anything fast. I don't drive fast. I don't think fast. I just, I don't, I, I walk slow. He said, you know what? You walk like you're on vacation. <laughs> well, I, maybe because I'm thinking of taking one. I, I don't know what my problem is, but I am kind of slow. And I didn't like it all the time. He'd make up a little song about me. Here come the Pepsi man. And then he'd do it in slow motion. One Pepsi can, <laughs> two. So I didn't really, really adore the guy, you know. I thought he was funny. And apparently I said something to him and I, I shared the gospel with him. I don't remember. So he comes to me one stop later on a few days. A few days pass, and he says, I want to thank you. From the bottom of my heart, he starts to cry. My marriage is back together. I'm off the couch. I'm with my wife. I started going to a church. I have a Bible. The church, I don't really get what they're saying so much, but I really like it, and they sing a lot. 
I've never sung in my life. <clears throat> and now I'm singing these songs about God. And I just want to thank you. And I said, for what? I don't remember talking to you. And he said, oh, yeah, you do. It changed my life. And I'm like, well, what was it? I, I, I honestly don't know. You know why? Because I didn't like him. You know, do you know what I mean? He's so irritating. Here's my point. I didn't have to like him. I didn't even have to try. Something on the gospel slipped out of a corner of my mouth while I wasn't even looking and saved him and healed his marriage and put him on track to be in church and maybe even the ministry. And what did I do? He says, not many days from now. Power is going to come, and that power is going to arrange the meetings. That power is going to breathe life into your words. This power is going to touch his heart and change his life and heal his marriage and set him free and change how he sees life. And you're going to see him in heaven, not because of anything you did, but because of my mercy. Thank you for being my feet. Thank you for being the hands. Thank you for, you know, almost being my mouth. <laughs> But that's what he says, but it's the power of God in our lives. The Spirit does everything, and what a huge sigh of relief, not just in world evangelism, but is there one command in the Bible that you can keep on your own? I tell you the truth. If you even look on a woman with lust, you have committed adultery. If you're angry in your heart and you call someone an idiot, he says, you know where you're going to hell? Let everybody consider others better than themselves. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. I can't do anything like that. He says, you can with power. Oh, when dynamite comes, oh, you can. And when dynamite's not in the back bedroom and it's not by your hand or your night table it's in your heart you have access to power and that power is what's going to do the work you cooperate I'll do the power that's the Holy Spirit that's just an amazing thing not many days from now you'll receive power well it was a big day and the promise was a long time in coming, Old Testament even, Ezekiel 11. He said, you know, a day's coming when I'm going to give them a, an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. The root of Judaism of outward obedience and sacrifice to cover our sins uh, has blossomed. Not many days from now, the birth of a whole new way of doing things, inward relationship, being born again. Uh, not outward observance of trying to be good, but an inward response to the love of God with the power to actually keep the command. The one who who issues the command enables the obedience. It's the same God. And there's nothing in that book that God asks of you that his Holy Spirit can't, with your cooperation, 
accomplish. He says a new power is coming. You're going to love God with your heart. You're actually going to want to do the right thing. You're going to want to obey from the heart. And so here comes the question. They realize it's a big day. <laughs> wow, everything's changing. There's a new covenant. Judaism is changing. The day of the week we worship on has gone from Saturday to Sunday. Wow, is this the day that Israel becomes the superpower of the world, like all the prophets say? Jesus says, uh, boys, listen, uh, God has that all under control. That's not your business when that happens. He doesn't say it's not going to happen. He just says about the timing of that, first comes the church age. First, we've got to evangelize the world, he says. And in God's time, that kingdom will come. Romans 11 and verse 26, just to prove that the Old Testament prophets knew what they were talking about. He says, when that last Christian accepts the Lord and becomes saved, he says, at that time, all the nation of Israel will be saved. Romans 11 verse 26. But first, the evangelism of the world. So when they say, is this the time Israel becomes the superpower of the world? The Old Testament says, as we learned in Revelation, that there is a day coming in a millennial 1,000-year reign. The earth is renewed. Jesus reigns on a throne in the capital of the world, which will be Jerusalem. Israel's borders will be 10 times what it is today, according to the, the specs given in the Old Testament. And it says of things like the, the, the nations of the world at that time will bring their wealth and honor to Israel. There'll be pilgrimages. And in fact, in Zechariah, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. And so they want to know, hey, that sounds like the day. No more Romans. Israel will be front and center. Our Messiah will be in Jerusalem. And everybody will know there's a God in Israel. And Jesus says, not yet. Not for you to know. Wait on the power, get the power, and start bringing it in increments throughout the world. So lastly, now, the Holy Spirit, this power, is a person. Uh, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, where you get pneumonia. It means breath or wind. And, and this person, this, this wind is a person. The, the breath of God is called he and given names like the helper, the comforter, the advocate. In Hebrew, it's ruach. It's the same idea as wind and spirit. And he says, there's a person coming who's going to baptizu you, to dip or to submerge or to immerse. And uh, that's what we see. So when Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you the encourager, the comforter, the counselor, to help you. He'll be with you forever. The world can't receive him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And then he says it, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Ah, so there's a connection between the Holy Spirit and Jesus. In fact, Acts calls in Acts chapter 16 and verse 7, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus. Uh, 
He's also called in Colossians 1, he says, this is the mystery that's been hidden for ages, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what the Bible teaches is that God, Christ, Jesus, is in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is really the Lord. Uh, in fact, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we consider the Holy Spirit a person, the third person of the Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we have the Spirit who comes into our hearts as a person. You know, gone is the idea of, you know, being a Christian is all about what I do, what I can't do, you know, being a good person. That is so garbage. That has nothing to do. It's all about a person, a father, a spirit that comes into me and, and fills me with love and the power to live the right life. It's about relationship restored. It's not about, oh, oh I can't do that, or oh, I got to do this. It's about, I, I want to do this because I, I have this loving Father in me. Now I have this relationship. I remember when one of our little cherubs uh, said the sinner's prayer by the bedside, maybe five years old, and they said, Daddy, it feels all warm inside now, you know? That's because a person, a living person comes into you. You feel him. You get it. You have contentment. You have peace. Things make sense to you. You're in your right mind. You see the world, or you should be anyway, or most of us, uh, try to be in our right minds. Amen? It's a good thing. And he will immerse us in his presence and overflow us. Now, let's talk about this baptism he gives to us. Uh, in one sense of the word, when he says the Holy Spirit will baptize you, there's a one-time event where the Holy Spirit comes into you and makes you alive. You are saved. That's a one-time event. There is one God, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. So technically, you should never call anything else the baptism of the Holy Spirit except when you become a Christian, technically. That's just biblically. Since there's only one baptism, the Holy Spirit comes in, baptizes you, you're saved. End of story. In fact, if the Spirit of Christ is not in you, you do not belong to Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. So somebody came up to me in the 80s and asked me, uh, do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you Spirit-filled? And I said, I certainly hope so. What they meant in the charismatic church that I attended and was brought up in was, have you spoken with tongues? They shouldn't call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit or are you filled with the Spirit? You have to be filled with the Spirit or you're not saved. And so that said, there is also another experience that we do sometimes call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We should call it the filling of the Spirit, but we don't. We call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Whatever we call it, it's a very good thing, and it's 
recommended by the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit who says, be filled continually with the Spirit. That's in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. It says in the Greek mode of the verb to be continually filled with the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit. What does that mean? It means I'm already saved. I've already come to the Lord. But there's an empowering, there's an overflowing experience that the, the Holy Spirit will grant to our hearts so that we can live for him, that we can enjoy life. Half of our problems stem from this one thing. We are not baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit in the second sense of this word. I mean, Paul was already saved. And then in Acts, what is it, Acts 13, they're filled with the Spirit. And, and, and they have filled with joy. If you are frustrated... If, if things are just not very happy in the Christian life and just dull and empty and you're bored and you just don't get it and you're just kind of, you know, dragging yourself along in this Christian life, it's because you're not filled with the Spirit. You ask God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. You wait on his presence. You worship. You get in the word. You repent of your sins. You open your heart up. And it's not really about getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit getting more of you. That is the answer. Not your willpower. I'm sorry. I love therapists, but the answer isn't with your therapist. I, I'd go to a therapist if I could afford one. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> I love Christian therapists. I think they're gifted. I think they're uh, added to the body of Christ. But that. Listen, some trust in horses and some in chariots and whatever else you think you're trusting in, but the answer is the name of the Lord and the Spirit of our God. Check your heart. Is he in there? Is there dynamite? Well, we're going to talk about what that must look like because no matter what we're going to call it, we got to have it. Now, I'm wrapping things up here in how to know if I'm filled with the Spirit in the second sense of the word. If you've repented of your sins and you've asked Christ to save you, you've got the Spirit. We're talking about the fullness, the, the mass of your sails, that full wind and just this wonderful overflowing. What does that look like? So I'm at a pastor's conference, and I'm, I'm sitting at lunch with other pastors. And we're talking, and one of the guys says to me, he says, man, I've got this guy who came up to me, and he said after church service where five people got saved, he said to me, when are we going to go deeper in the Holy Spirit? And so the guy said, well, give, the pastor said, give me your best shot now. Tell me, Tell me what you envision here in our church where we could go. What's the sign of going deeper in the Holy Spirit? And he said, well, and the guy said, best shot. And he said, you know, we all stand together and we all have to sit together. And that just is so, it just binds the Holy Spirit. And so if we could just stand and sit, that's my idea of going deeper in the Holy Spirit. And so all the pastors kind of did what you just did, went, kind of rolled their eyes a little bit. And one guy said, yeah, 
You know, when we talk about the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit, you usually hear something kind of strange. Not all, always, but not, nothing biblical. Like if there's a move of the Holy Spirit or if I'm a Spirit-filled person, how would I know that? And people usually talk about volume or style of worship. Which they're, they're, they're good conversations to have, but they're, they're, they have no indication of whether or not the Spirit is at work. It has no indication. Philosophy of format of the service, whether you stand or sit or fall. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it, it doesn't mean anything as far as whether or not you are spirit-filled. So let's, let's take a look at that. Because that's, first of all, when you're looking for the activity of the Holy Spirit, look for character qualities. Because here's what he says. The evidence of the Spirit, or fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, or the evidence, the proof that you're looking for that the Holy Ghost is there, right here. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, or let's call forbearance patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what I'm going to call tier one, all right, because I'm not done yet. Just hold on. All right, all of you, I'm already just thinking what you're thinking. All right, number one, let's put a face on this Holy Spirit. When you overlook offenses and extend mercy and put the needs of others first in a loving way, you have the Holy Spirit at work. When you have joy in the midst of a hard time, you have the Holy Spirit at work. When you have peace and contentment in the midst of trouble, he says, a peace that passes understanding. You've got the Holy Ghost. You've got the Holy Ghost when you're weathering a storm and, and everything's well with your soul and you're not unraveling. You've got the Holy Spirit. When you're kind and sweet and considerate and sensitive to others, when your words and your thoughts and deeds reflect moral goodness, he says, wow, there he is. The evidence, you want your evidence? There he is. He's manifesting now. When you're faithful, he says, faithfulness is a proof. You want to see the Holy Ghost? Faithfulness, when somebody is keeping their promise and their oath, even when it hurts. Bingo. Holy Spirit is manifesting that ability. That's his proof that he's with you when you're a good steward, when you're gentle, proof, mild-mannered, soft-hearted, humble, gentle with others, patient with the weak, when you have self-control, he says, you want to know what is a proof that the spirit is at work is when the person has self-control. And we think just the opposite. Or sometimes... That when a person loses control, he's under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a complete misstatement of the scriptures. Because he says the evidence and proof of the Holy Spirit at work is, is that you're under control. You've mastered your passions. You don't crane your head to follow your lusts. And when an image comes up on the screen, you have self-control. Why? you got the Holy Ghost. That's where he is. 
He's in the privacy of your own hotel room when you, all the channels are available to the man who's traveling in business and the Holy Ghost of fire falls upon your heart and you say, you know what, I'm unplugging this beast and I'm not going to do what 80% of all the males do in this world because I have the Holy Spirit and I have self-control. It didn't come from him. It came from the Holy Spirit. We call it Holy Ghost, by the way, just the King James word for spirit. They called it ghost, and that's kind of lost. It's become another meaning, amen, so we, we avoid that. In short, my first tier of finding the Holy Spirit, you behave in ways, this is so important, you know the Holy Spirit is at work in you when you behave in ways contrary to human nature. So in other words, someone wants to sue you for your car and you throw in the bike as well, all right? When, when someone irritates you to no end and you know that they want to be invited to that party and you invite them. When you're doing something that, wow, this doesn't, when you're answering somebody enraged with a soft answer, wow, it's time for the Holy Spirit. Now level two, and I'm wrapping things up here. Level two are the gifts and the enablements that the Bible talks about. And so if you want to find the Holy Spirit, when he enables you to give a word of wisdom, like suddenly you just have the words for somebody, it unlocks a big problem. It's so, wow, the Holy Spirit is manifested in you through a word of wisdom. The Holy Ghost was there. You didn't even think anything of it. You thought, wow, I just had a smart thing to say. No, <laughs> not that you're not smart and you don't say smart things, but if you ever do, it's not you, it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I love you, I really do. Come back next week, please. All right, number two. When he gives you discernment in a tough situation, it just becomes clear it's totally complicated, and boom, you have discernment. The Holy Spirit has manifested in you. Oh, we're always looking for it here and there and there and popping up and yelling out. And, and, and it's happened in the foyer. It's happened in the privacy of your own home or in the car. When you have the knowledge you need to put all the pieces together, a word of knowledge. When you're praying with size and a language that, you, that you've never learned before just bubbles out of you in the most wonderful way. The gift of tongues. Paul said, I thank God. God, I speak in tongues more than you all. But he said, you don't use it properly. It's a sign of immaturity. He who prays in a tongue edifies himself. And who doesn't need that? I love that gift. You know the Spirit's at work when you open your home and you make other people feel welcome in your presence or at the church. That's called the gift of hospitality. It doesn't come from you, it comes from heaven. It's a gift, it's the dynamite package of the person who lives inside of you. You wanna find the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit moving? Is it a welcoming place? When you're digging deep in your wallet to help the needy or to give, to support God's work, there's a gift for that. There's an app for that, <laughs> sorry. It's like a little G and you press on it. It's giving when you're always wanting to help and those people are just scurrying around. Can I be of help? And you think you're just a helpful person. You're not. I mean, you are, but it's not you. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, that's the gift of helps. 
or the gift of serving. When everyone's doubting something's going to happen and you just have the faith to believe, the Holy Spirit has been manifested in a gift called faith. When you're all about comforting and uplifting people who are hurting, he says, that's a gift, man. You like to encourage people? He's saying, I'm glad you like to encourage people, but that's a gift that I've given you. It comes from heaven. It wasn't born in your DNA. When you're encouraging and your heart is breaking and you're saying the words that nobody else is saying, man, that's your gift. It's the Holy Ghost. You're overflowing with the Holy Spirit. When you see a Christian wandering and you reach out to bring them back on the right track, it's the gift of exhortation. When you can organize things and see efficiently and say, this ministry could, could be more efficient if we do that, it's the gift of administration. It's from the Holy Spirit. He's manifesting. He's there. And when someone's really blown it and they're undeserving, you're able to extend mercy. Mercy, extending mercy, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. You want to know where's the Spirit moving? It's when you extend mercy and the gift of the Holy Spirit softens your heart and you release your grudges. Mercy is not deserving it. And you're able to look at an undeserving person who hurt you and you say, I'm cutting you slack, you're free. That's a gift. The Holy Ghost is moved. Let's get happy about the true gifts and the movings of the Holy Spirit and not be distracted by sometimes very legitimate things that go on in a service. But the true and the profound and the substantive uh, moving of the Holy Spirit comes from these kinds of things. When you're out in front and people want to follow you, you've got the gift of leading. If you're good at speaking, there's a, there's a gift called speaking. You use that. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is on you and using you. When you're shepherding a congregation, it's the gift of pastoring. When you're leading someone to the Lord because you're really good at it, you're an evangelist, but that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. When you've been given a 30% chance of surviving 11 years ago, and people pray for you, and you're still here, it's a gift called healing. How many of us have prayed for a sick kid and the sick kid recovers? My word, does it have to be somebody in a wheelchair who stands up at a crusade? How many of you know somebody who's been prayed over and was sick with anything and got better? It's a gift of healing. Well, we look for these things. God heals. Each one of you should use whatever gift he or she has received to serve others faithfully administrating God's grace in its various forms. If you want a short list of where I pulled, that's not exhaustive. There's a lot more than that. 1 Corinthians 12 was one set of lists. Romans 12, Ephesians 4.11, 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. So in conclusion, how do you know if the Spirit's aglow, becoming more like Jesus? character, the church being strengthened, the lost being saved, 
the overarching theme of our lives to impact somebody with the gospel. He says, you'll be my witnesses through character uh, transformation, through the indwelling power, through the person who uh, takes up residence in your heart. He says, through your lips and your lives, I want you to impact somebody, a Christian who needs to be strengthened. You'll notice that everything to do with the Holy Spirit is usually about building somebody else up or bringing somebody else in. That's what he's after. That's what he's asking. Not in bizarre or strange behaviors, but in healed marriages, in salvation, in baptisms, and in Christians being strengthened in love and mercy and forgiveness. There's a lot about the charismatic movement, which I was brought up in from the time I became a Christian, that I really like. And there are excesses. Don't misunderstand me to throw the whole thing out, but I will throw out some of the excesses and the unscriptural imbalances of it. Uh, I cherish my heritage. Uh, those godly people who poured into my life and in Barb's life, Barb is third generation Pentecost. Somebody said, glory to God. <laughs> that was hilarious. Anyway, I'll throw you in. I have the gift of discernment. That was funny. <laughs> oh, I think we better pray. What do you think? Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your Holy Spirit. Fill us to overflowing, and all will be well. In Jesus' name, amen.